I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for coming back to Slow Mo. We continue this year to give you as many diverse perspectives of the world we live in as I can to allow you to reflect and slow down. One perspective that I rarely bring to Slow Mo is what we're going to talk about today, which is business, because business is probably the reason why we don't slow down. We go to work, we get motivated to make money, then more money, then get titles and then bigger titles. And we try to survive and engage and we go to networking events and all of that somehow affects our life in ways that are really not about slowing down. My guest today is the head of Google for Startups in the UK, Marta Krupinska. She is Originally an entrepreneur, she founded three companies herself, including her last company, Asimo, which was about sending money across the world in fintech, who raised $70 million from VCs and had more than one and a half million customers. Marta received multiple awards during her entrepreneurship career, where, for example, she was one of the Forbes 30 under 30 in finance. She won that award in 2016, and she's now the head of Google for Startups, so in the UK. And this is where I remember the years when Google for Startups started. I was still at Google at the time. And this is a part of Google that is sort of trying to work with startups, not to acquire them and not to direct them in the technology that they make, but sort of to engage with that DNA of where Google started, if you want. And so Marta's work focuses on acceleration of the exciting startups in the UK, basically using technology for social good and hopefully encouraging a diverse set of entrepreneurs to be part of the scene. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Marta Krupinska. I want to talk about many, 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 many topics. Okay. But I, I want to talk about that. I start with the idea of entrepreneurship because not everyone, I mean, some of us are rebellious enough to say, Hey, I'm not going to report to anyone. I'm going to build my own thing. You know, some of them are successful, but they're not the most successful. There is some kind of an entrepreneurship bug, I think. Like you get infected with it at a point in your life and then you can't stop. Like you, you were still founder in, in your startup when you went to Google. When I, during my 12 years at Google, I must have started maybe seven, eight things are co-founded. I always do things with others because I'm not good enough alone. Not good enough, not in a spiritual sense. Okay, people? I'm not, <laughs> no, I, I have blind spots in business, so others complement my blind spots. And um, the idea of being able to stop is almost impossible for me. Like I'm constantly, even though my, my mission in life now is to spread happiness, not one month will pass without me texting one of my previous colleagues or co-founders or whatever and saying, hey, I have this very interesting idea. We should start a business that does this. And often I do. 
So where did you get that from? Again, Poland, where you grew up, especially Krakow, actually, I, you know, it's not very entrepreneurial, especially in, it's like, get a job, be secure, be safe. You took a lot of risks. What happened? Yeah. I mean, it's, well, I suppose it started with naivety and with having, with, <laughs> and I, I actually think naivety is an incredible force in life. I think most of the things, if we knew how hard they were, everything from buying a house to getting married, to having children, to starting businesses, if we knew all of the things that could go wrong, I'm not sure if we would have necessarily <laughs> Love that. jumped in. It started, I come from absolutely no sort of entrepreneurial or business background whatsoever. I'm very lucky and privileged in that both my parents had higher education. But again, this is a post-socialist country in which pretty much everybody was able to get free higher education. So there was a certain level of conversation at home, even if it was just actually thinking about opportunities, travel, values. But my parents didn't have a penny to their name. It was actually, and it's interesting you say you're not good enough alone. I don't think anybody is good enough alone. Even solo founders need to go out and build advisory teams and, and senior teams. And I think if, if we're not aware of our own limitations, we're definitely not going to go anywhere. And my story is incredibly simple. I was 18 years old. My best friend went traveling, figured he wanted to go on a trip around the world and came to me and said, if only we could go on a trip around the world, but I don't know how would one even go about trying to organize one. And this is again, 2006 with probably like a lonely planet sort of guidebook in your hand and very, mm. very, very early days of web 2.0 and any sort of user generated content or online communities, at least in our part of the world. So we were like, okay, how about we try and build a website? <laughs> we didn't know the word startup. We didn't really think about it as a business to start with, but the goal was to find to find like-minded people who would want to join that quest in this boundless internet where sort of the ideas and opportunities seemed endless. And I think for me, the whole, the whole thing with entrepreneurship is what an exciting time we live in. 50 years ago, if you wanted to start a business, you'd have to have startup capital. You'd probably have to you know, build a factory, hire people. At this moment in time, you can sort of start a business out of your bedroom with a couple of mates and of course, the risk is huge. And if you want to do it properly, you're going to have to find some money to finance it at some point. And it's not easy. It's probably the most difficult thing one can do. But it's also the most rewarding thing one can do. Because if you're just a little bit lucky and a little bit persistent, you might end up working with brilliant people on a cause that lights up your heart and mind and, and creates opportunities for everyone. That's an amazing way of describing it. I mean, it's not the way people talk about entrepreneurship or starting up a business. Mostly they talk about the millions of dollars that you're going to sell it for. They're talking about the cars that you're going to buy as a result and the fame and the cover of the magazine. And you're saying your core here is to say you're going to be doing something that lights up your heart and mind. That's very unusual, I would say, for what people think entrepreneurship is about. I always like to go back to sort of to words and definitions. I actually, I am... Um... I'm an organizational psychologist by education, but the reason why I wanted to study psychology was because I was interested in psycholinguistics and how, how the words we use influence the way we perceive reality around us. And, and when you think about the Ooh, word entrepreneurship, that, I really that, think... That needs an episode on its own. The, word, <laughs> the, way, the words we use. Oh yeah, absolutely. The words that we use completely shape our perception of life, our perception of ourselves. It's incredible. But go on. Sorry <laughs> I've interrupted you. No, so um, when you think about entrepreneurship, I think the word entrepreneurship has really been co-opted by 
tech entrepreneurship, and that's not necessarily bad. But these days, when we when we say entrepreneur, we think Elon Musk. We think you know entrepreneurs today are the rock stars of the eighties and nineties. Front covers of magazines, lavish mansions, and recently space travel, right? But actually, entrepreneurship. Like entrepreneurship was starting up local shops to serve the local community. Entrepreneurship Correct. for very many people, especially especially in the developing world, is being able to to support yourself and your family. And it's trying to see what are the skills that you've got at your disposal, what's around you to try and create some value. And I think we have to be much more. I actually I chair a charity called Youth Business International that supports entrepreneurs under the age of 35 to start businesses. And it's anything from artisans in Africa wanting to sell stuff, including online, to entrepreneurs in Canada wanting to build big global platforms. But I think ultimately, A, I think it's helpful to just remember that entrepreneurship is not just what starts when Andreessen Horowitz (laughs) gave you 100 million. It is also, and this is what I do a lot in my work, both as a founder and now as head of Google for Startups in the UK, when I work with founders, often my first question is, why do you do what you do? What do you want to achieve? What does success look like for you? And I think from that even, we can try and extrapolate, should that particular person or founder be going down the route of raising a ton of money and building a global platform? Or maybe is there a slightly different model that will work better for them, make them a better leader and make this a more efficient organization? There are so many ways to slice a business or entrepreneurship as a concept, as far as I think. So this leads me right into the topic that I mainly wanted to talk about, which is you sit with with an entrepreneur who is leading an organization and you talk to them about what they want to achieve and so on. And what you normally get, sorry to say, I've coached thousands and thousands of startups myself. You get a very fake answer that's talked to them by someone who said, this is the way you should talk, this is the way you should pitch, and so on and so forth, right? The idea of fake it till you make it, the idea of appearing to be something that you're not, it's actually quite hard. And normally what I did whenever I got an entrepreneur, I'm almost like 70% of the time, 10 minutes into the conversation, I would use the word chill. Can you please... (laughs) Right? Seriously, can you please treat me like a human being? Talk to me like a human. Tell me about you as a human. Tell me about the people that you're working with. Tell me about how you're expecting to affect humanity with what you're building. Even if what you're building really is just going to affect your neighborhood and it's going to be a corner shop that has fresher cheese or whatever. I don't know, right? But can we talk about this? That's not actually the case. Honest conversations is... I don't know how to say it diplomatically. It needs to be triggered in the business world. It's not the norm of the business world. Has that been your experience? I I think what you're describing is is looking for authenticity. And when we think about good leaders, when I think about good leaders, is people that are authentic. And it's actually often authentic means there is a degree of vulnerability. On a personal level, what I find quite frustrating is Again, I, I wake up in the morning, open the news, like look at TechCrunch, and there is this endless stream of these perfect looking people in their sort of perfectly shaped organizations, all of these overnight successes. And I don't know how much we can learn from this beyond the fact that many might find it aspirational. I don't find it inspiring 
because I look at myself and I see my flaws and I see my insecurities and I look at people around me. And actually, when I think of the entrepreneurs that I appreciate the most, when I look at my co-founders over the years, there's been a lot of vulnerability, a lot of difficult conversations, a lot of facing the challenges and admitting that there are challenges. And <laughs> so many. And, and, and in fact, so one of my one of my favorite books is Leadership on the Line by Ronald Heifetz, who was also part of the same leadership program that, that you lectured at. And he talks about leadership being being the ability to make people face reality and mobilizing them to do something about it. And quite often facing reality means realizing that something is wrong, that something is broken, that there is a deficiency in a business model or in the team or in ourselves. And we can't really fix it until we admit that it's there. So I really relate to what you're saying when you go, people go sort of straight into the technical problems of this is what's going on rather than this is how I am. This is what I dream of. And if we, and again, this is more of a philosophical debate, I believe that people are good, are driven, want to grow, want to self-actualize. You know, you're going to have some other people out there who think that we're mean and selfish and lazy and we need to be whipped into submission. But I don't believe that's true. But if we think that people want to self-actualize, then the best way to make them do their best possible work is to find what fires them and find where they want to go. And hopefully, either as, as an employer, as a leader, as a friend, being able to align whatever their emotional incentives might be to the incentives that you build into the organization you're creating. But do you think there is a use for the idea of appearing to be that grandiose, perfect looking person? And is there value to that at all? There is definitely value. But again, there are different ways to show up in different rooms. And I also feel like I have to say it also is slightly different for men and women. It's slightly different oh, for to that white topic. people this is and the people topic. of color. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there is, and unfortunately, if I was just to spell it out, probably a well-educated white guy comes into a room and shows some vulnerability and he is suddenly the world's most emotionally astute person. Let's erect a, a statue to celebrate him. And on the other hand, we might have a you know, a black woman who would try and do the same and would be completely, yeah, completely considered unfit. So there are different levels of what's acceptable. I hope, you know, these are paradigms. Paradigms take time to change. So even us having these conversations about what good looks like, hopefully will help shift what's acceptable. But I'll definitely tell you, you know, was I in my first ever board meeting, before it actually did I spend five minutes in the bathroom power posing because I was sweating like a dog and really stressed? Yes. <laughs> did I try and put on my bravest face? Yes. On the flip side, were there times that, especially with my co-founders or in difficult conversations, did I do what what could be sort of referred to as just open myself up completely and sort of surrender the outcome? These are all the questions that I've got. These are all the things I don't know. And has it ever worked out well? Yes, it has. Tom Hulen, who runs GV Google Ventures in Europe, who is endlessly impressive, talks about how he likes when founders admit that they have an issue that they haven't solved yet, because he probably already knows that there is an issue, but he'd rather see that the founder recognizes that there is a challenge rather than pretends that it doesn't exist, because then it definitely will never be fixed. Okay, you, you got us into the real topic. You're a woman entrepreneur. And I, I coach, again, a lot of women entrepreneurs. And I have to say, the biggest 
And I'll be very open here. I think everyone knows how much I respect the feminine. The truth is the market of business in general, finance and entrepreneurship is completely geared up against any kind of non male white. So if you're a person of color or if you come from a, a non-Western country, in most places you're viewed as, okay, let's see if he or she knows what they're talking about. If you're a woman, sadly, and I say that with tons of respect, the way a woman looks at the world, you know, the feminine looks at the world, the way the feminine will discuss their business plan, the way they will present their numbers is actually not the way the finance community works, the investors work. And sometimes it's actually quite challenging because I listen and I understand fully what that amazing entrepreneur and founder is telling me. But then I tell her openly, I don't think that the investors will get it. When you don't show them the numbers this way, when you don't show them the, the results in the hyper-masculine approach to things, they may not get it. And so I will say that it's probably one of the biggest challenges on the planet today, even as so much progress that we've done to be a successful woman entrepreneur in a business environment that is so hyper-masculine. Did you face that at all? Oh, completely, completely. And I think the one thing I would just say is, as much as I unfortunately agree with you, there are a couple of things I would I, I would pick on. One is, I think we're saying that we've that we've had all this progress. I actually I'm not sure how much progress. <laughs> there is progress. There is more talk of of supporting women. There is more talk of supporting founders of color. Even even we at Google for Startups, we spun up a fund to to exclusively invest in black founders in US, Brazil, Europe, and Africa, of which approximately 40% are women. So there are all these great initiatives. At the end of the day, the numbers are not moving that strongly. Women-only teams are still raising about 1% of global VC capital. The thing that you just described... 1%? Yeah, 1%. And oh my it's, it's, God. And it's, it's been disgrace. pretty much stable for the past seven years. And the whole like tech, sort of what we today call ecosystem is probably like 20, 15 years old. So there is progress, but I worry that a lot of this progress is good PR. We're changing who we put on the covers of magazines. But at the end of the day, the people that get to positions of power, the people that sit on the boards, that people that, that financially benefit from success of companies. Frankly, investors, again, you're saying if, you if a woman presents her point in a particular way, then it might not speak to the white male investor. So how do we, you know, Absolutely. what 5% five, 5 of general partners globally are now women? The numbers of communities of color are also really low. So I suppose it is going to be an endless uphill battle and until we manage to, to level the playing field on both sides of the table. But you've asked me if, if I faced this. I did. Of course I did. And you know what? One of my huge regrets, maybe not regrets, but one of the things that I painfully note is that I've co-founded three companies in my career. I've had seven co-founders. All of them were white men. And it's frankly one of the reasons why I joined Google, because I was on my third company. I was supposed to know a thing or two already. And I had a decent network. I had much better access than before. It was still bloody hard. And I was still almost exclusively surrounded by white men. So sort of using resources of a large company to try and level the playing field felt very, very compelling. But, you know, have I been taken or have I been asked if I'm the secretary of my, of my co-founders before? Oh, my God. Yes. Um, you know, have I had investors in board, like coming into my office and asking me to make coffee in wait for speak to my co-founder exclusively or one of my employees because they were male yes this has happened 
on the flip side, I think this is a story that is that nicely ties into what we discussed before, which is around sort of honest conversations. How can we, to the extent possible, well, be outraged about it, talk about it and make sure that it's changed, but also how can we not let it get into our head at FreeUp, my last startup, my co-founder and I went into a, an investor meeting and one of the investors insinuated that we're sleeping together. We were both outraged. Now, we didn't speak about it for at least another year or a year and a half because I thought, okay, this is terrible. Obviously, they're thinking I'm sleeping with him because I'm just a woman. Turns out he felt completely inadequate because he was a first-time founder and he was like, I'm only here. Like they think I'm only here because I'm sleeping with Marta Krupinska. Otherwise they wouldn't have a meeting with me. And I feel we both spent time being really upset about it until we had a conversation and we were able to have a laugh about it. Ultimately show each other that we've got each other's back and move on together. And on that, I would also say that allyship from my male co-founders has been really important to me. And now I take my role as an ally for instance, you know, I mean, I should no longer be diversity. I'm a white, well-educated woman. I'm taking my role as an ally to my colleagues or friends or founders of color. And what can I then do in such rooms when they are not treated well? What can we do? What can we do? I mean, I'm sorry to say, but the two stories you shared to me are painful. Like this is painful. It's, yeah, you passed through them. You're successful still. You know, it's it's sort of... I'm sorry to use bad language, it pisses me off that the world is this horrible, honestly. And in my, in my mind, it shouldn't be that way because some of the smartest human beings, the most effective that I have ever worked with, by definition, were feminine or women, okay? Were able to see the part of life that I couldn't see which, you know, I'm now much better at it. I'm, I, I, I believe now I'm more in my feminine than I am in my masculine. But at the time, you know, if you ask around Google, I always had 50% of my leadership team. One of every two was a woman encouraged to act in her feminine. And it made us intelligent. It made us able to do things that you know, just the hyper-masculine work environment doesn't even recognize to start. What can be done? I mean, how can we take that 1% and get it to be a reasonable share of 50, which is, if you just do simple math, why? What is wrong? What can be changed? I mean, one of the things that can be done, you've just described people in positions of power who are able to create jobs, promote people, but also business leaders who have money to spend on suppliers and business partnerships, just being more intentional and thoughtful about where you spend your money, who you hire, who you promote. And I love that you talk about the masculine and feminine, because these are qualities, it's a spectrum of qualities that we can all lean into. So if you as a male leader lean into that more feminine side, if you model behavior, if you reward people who act in that fashion, then this changes the Absolutely. perception in the organization of what's acceptable, what good looks like. And that can be done by everybody, whether one is a black woman or a, or, or a gay white man, or regardless of where we are and who we are, we can act in ways that will create more inclusive environments. One of the things that I find frustrating is, unfortunately, and this is just a fact of life, it is going to take more effort <laughs> because if we're trying to change behavior, if we're trying to 
even find diverse pipelines for hiring. So often in tech, we finally have the opportunity, you know, you raise money and you finally can create jobs and you need to, you've already promised your investors you'll be moving at the speed of light. You're already out of time. And suddenly you just hire that guy that you worked with in your previous job because that's the easiest thing to do. So how can we plan for these things? How can we start creating these pipelines sooner? How can we put the effort in to start moving in the right circles, in the right environments and find talent that we naturally don't have access to because some of them did not go to Stanford? Or, But that's fine because especially in the technology sector, we've shown that talent comes in all shapes and sizes and some of the best innovators are people who are able to come in and with a naive, fresh approach, look at a problem. So it, it takes work, but it is, it is possible, I think, if we all commit to it. Was it worth it to be an entrepreneur, to be a founder with all the pain, all the pressures, all the misunderstandings sometimes? A hundred percent. We sold my last company just over two years ago. I've not been active in that company for a year and a half. I miss it every day. And I, I work with founders every day. I, I chair an early stage startup. It's still very much a part of my life, but I still think it's an incredible privilege, which is even more why I think it's so important that we make sure that everybody has access to this opportunity. There is this quote we use at Google, which is, um, if you want technology to work for everyone, it has to be built by everyone. Um, and I think this is, yeah. this is why I've been excited about the work that we've been doing, because being able to, to do that work, to go out and find exceptional entrepreneurs and change the face of what a successful entrepreneur looks like. A year and a half ago, when we launched the Black Founders Fund in Europe, the number of times I've heard from investors, we would like to invest more diversely, but there are just no successful Black-led startups. We, we announced the Black Founders Fund. We had 800 applications from across Europe. This talent is out there. These opportunities are out there. It takes time. But you're, you're asking if it was worth it, if I do it again. First of all, I definitely will do it again. Will, not would. Will. Oh, of course will. <laughs> oh, did you listen to that, Google? No. <laughs> you see, the idea is that it never really stops, actually. I know that to be true. I mean, I, as I said myself, even while I was at Google, I started many businesses that were not in tech just to respect the conflict of interest, but that it's always, it's a bug. It always has to be fulfilled somehow. And I think there is an element of just the excitement of learning. So when I think about leaders that I, that I really love and respect that I've met over the years, just this endless desire to open up your horizons, to ask interesting questions. I think there is an, again, startup careers, unlike corporate careers, at least from what I understand, these are sort of, these are more jungle gyms than ladders. You can be, I was a founder first when I was 19 years old. When Asimo was one of the fastest growing fintechs globally, I was probably 24, 25. There's no chance in hell I would have been able to get anywhere near that if I tried to pursue a usual sort of career path. And still, when I look at people that are much older than me, much smarter than me, much more robust, the one thing that I see that brings them all together is the ability to humbly admit that there are certain things that they don't know and ask questions and say, this is a really interesting sphere. This is a really compelling area. For instance, about a year and a half ago, I don't know about you, I'm terrified about the climate crisis. But it's not the kind of fear that takes away my agency. It's the kind of fear that makes me want to go every day, like, have I done everything I can about it yet? And I, um, a year ago, I 
took on a chair role in a company that designed the first ever liquid hydrogen-powered autonomous marine drone. Mo, what do I know about liquid hydrogen-powered <laughs> autonomous marine drones? Absolutely nothing. But what I do know is how to build an effective senior leadership team, how to approach the sort of storytelling aspect of fundraising, how to capture hearts and minds, and how to build a robust company culture. And it has been fascinating for me. Like, how do we decarbonize the marine industry? So again, this sort of the opportunities of entrepreneurship and the intellectual and emotional opportunities for entrepreneurship, as far as I'm concerned, are boundless, which again, makes my Google job exciting because we're finding some of the people that are solving fundamental problems, many of, many of which I didn't know before. One of the founders I love, Rachel Corson, she founded a company called Afrocentrics. They make ethical and cruelty-free beauty products for Afro hair. And like, I didn't know that black women spend on average six times more than white women on care products. I didn't know that most of what's available, it's really bad for you and really toxic. And then I see this incredible woman who basically saw this opportunity at 18 years old, went and studied two degrees to learn how to make these cosmetics by herself, and then built a company that is now much loved by the community. And also, even though it's a direct-to-consumer product, she is so focused on the data aspect of things and has built such a strong community following. This is very much a tech platform. She's raised VC money. It wasn't easy, but she has. And she continues doing really well. There are you know, actually a similar story of something I didn't know anything about and now I'm really passionate about. Shardina Havandi, founder of Tune, was misdiagnosed with bowel cancer when she was a teenager. And just nothing would work. And she went on to, again, study two degrees. She self-diagnosed herself with a very rare hormonal condition and built a company that helps women understand their hormones. And there are stats that are shocking. The pill, the contraceptive pill, wasn't tested on women until the 90s because we didn't understand what's happening with women's hormones. So the COVID vaccine was largely tested on men. How do we overcome these challenges? And again, just being able to look at people grapple with these insurmountable challenges and then find innovative ways to overcome them. I think it's so inspiring. Absolutely the joy of my life. So why does Google have any interest in black women's hair or in uh, women's hormones? Why would that be part of what you do at Google for startups? So it's, it's interesting. And I'll give you a very honest answer. I feel like there are some of my colleagues that go and, you know, you remember these days much better than I do. You were there much before me. Like Google started in a garage and we have this sort of startup DNA. I don't think that's it. I think it's actually really thoughtful and really commercial. And you know what? Founders are very commercial. So I think this comes off really well. Some of the companies that are today, the highest market cap, fastest growth are companies that are five, 10 years old. I mean, I don't know, look at Hopin and what they've done. Look at the speed at which they're moving. There's so many companies that are moving really quickly. So actually building a following, building trust with early stage founders, it is long-term a really important strategy. Separately, I think we do need to understand, I mean, we do need to, again, going back to the idea of leadership, recognize the challenges that are out there and ask the third largest company in the world show up in the right way, support causes that are important and aligned with the company values so that we can keep our social license to operate. I think there is a lot of responsibility on big tech to show that we're on the whole net positive 
in the world rather than net negative. And for me, this is one of the ways in which we are actually well aligned and well able to help these early stage companies. What a fascinating thing that you do. So how do you manage all of that? You're a chair of, or, you know, on the board of multiple companies, you're working on Google for entrepreneurs. I know you're starting a podcast we're going to talk about in a minute. Tell me your typical day. What does that look like? Oh, it's changed massively over the past two years because I'm not going to tell you anything that you've not heard from anybody before. COVID changed everything. I was previously this person who I think I was afraid to stop for a moment. I was very, very <laughs> lucky to have really strong, really strong support in, in my friends and family. And actually on the friends point, I'd emphasize that a lot of my community don't come from tech or from business. And they really ground me. One of my best friends in the world is a sex worker and an activist. And I remember when these conversations around the role of women in business was really sort of firing up around 2013, 2014. And I remember somebody asked me in a, in a media interview what advice I'd give because I was a successful woman, but I was young and I was a migrant. And I was like, I mean, listen, guys, I suppose if I was able to do it, then maybe anybody can do it. And my best friend didn't speak to me for a month and I didn't know why. And she was like, I can't believe you would say this. I can't believe you don't understand that you are smart, well-educated, attractive, able-bodied. You live in London. And just by saying anybody can do it, you've completely erased the experience of so many other people. Now, she genuinely changed my life with that one conversation. And if, I had, mm. if I'd only been surrounded by people that are like me, think like me, are in the same community as me, that probably wouldn't happen. But... Um, Mostly I was, I was working, I was partying a lot, sort of work hard, party hard. I think this is a, a thing that we see a lot in these sort of intense sort of business environments. I was traveling a lot. I was very rarely with my own thoughts. And then COVID hit and I thought I'm going to go <laughs> crazy. So it's been much more mindful of the past couple of years. And arguably my mental health has also increased. And I've done a lot of therapy. I strongly recommend therapy to every single human in the world. I think it's really important in therapy not coaching. We need to separate these two and it's okay to do therapy and it's okay to be vulnerable and recognize that there are things that we need to work on. I I started doing yoga and I started running. It massively helps me just slow my brain down. And I try and I probably still work 10, 12 hour days minimum, but I try and be very mindful on how that time is spent. My little hack is I block out my Monday mornings because I spent many years getting very anxious around midday on Sunday about everything that was coming on Monday. And I basically was always working Sundays. By blocking out, I have no meetings until 11 a.m. on Monday. That basically means I get up in the morning and within three, four hours, I plan my entire week and I have a little bit of time to think what I'm going to do and what's most important. And this is actually something that we've started applying in our Google for Startups work. So we have this format that we call the Founder Standups. And we encourage founders to come together five to 10 people once a week, either first thing on a Monday or on a Friday and actually take an hour to think rather than what's the most pressing thing that I'm working on. Instead, what is the most important thing that I need to think about? Sort of what are my highs and lows challenges and be quite open and vulnerable and honest about what these are and try and sort of get some advice from the well, these days virtual room. 
And this actually is, and I suppose we're going to mention it, this is what has led to Scale Ups and Downs, which is the podcast that we're launching. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, why would you add one more thing to your life? Why? <laughs> because it's incredibly important. I don't know how, how it is for you, Mo, and if you, and I'd actually, I'd love to ask you how it is for you, but I, I spend a lot of time pinching myself thinking how exceptional it is that I am in the place where I am, that I have a platform, that I'm able to work with brilliant people, support others. Um, the majority of, I came to London on a, on a Ryanair flight wearing three coats, so I don't have to buy an extra suitcase. That was, it was so expensive for me. I spent the first month living here couch surfing, to those of you that remember what couch surfing was. Most even well-educated, smart, you know, well-able-bodied and good-looking Polish migrants in this country are still at best managing restaurants and not building multiple companies and working at Google. So being able to do all the work that I do, and largely thanks to my friends and family, having not become an asshole, I seriously think my biggest accomplishment in life is not that I started three companies and you know run a big organization at Google, it's that I haven't become an asshole despite all of this. <laughs> I love that statement. This, my biggest achievement in life is I haven't become a hazard. That's actually quite challenging. I promise you that. Success is quite, it's quite deceiving. Ego jumps in and goes like, I did it. You see, I'm better than all of you. It's actually quite something. Huh? Yeah. And also, again, it goes back to definitions. How do we define success? Because I think Gabriel Walker, who's a dear friend, she's one of the leading climate specialists in the UK. I've been spending lots of time with her recently, and she says she only works with people that fulfill three criteria, people that she loves, trusts, and looks up to. I think that to me is the definition of success, to be able to work and surround oneself with people that we love, trust, and look up to, because that's where we can do our best work. That's most rewarding and most fun. And of course, and money is important, but my approach to money is money is not as good as the lack of it is bad. So once you have your bases covered, which very many people around the world don't have, once you have your bases covered, the approach to sort of that desire for endlessly having more and more, at least for me, is lower. But going back to, to the podcast, we have found that the majority of value that we can give is, of course, giving people access to the best of Google, which we understand is giving people access to Googlers. Most early stage startups can't afford a PhD AI guy, and we can give you access to that person for free to consult you on whatever challenge that you've got. So giving access to Googlers, giving access to Google products, but then largely giving access to communities of relevant founders, founders relevant to each other, founders that are good leaders that are willing to share their challenges and learn from one another. This was what I think long-term will be most most valuable. What makes me happiest is when I look at my WhatsApp and I see that there are messages from you know a cohort we ran three years ago and they're still talking to each other and supporting each other. So if we were able to do that for the sort of 60 to 100 founders that we work with in sort of high-touch programs a year, how can we scale that? How can we make this bigger? How can we make this reach further. And, and the podcast was essentially an idea for that. How can we get founders who are based anywhere at any point that are not in our community yet to call us up and submit their business challenge? So it works as simply as you go to scaleupsanddowns.com. You can submit your business challenge. It applies to founders at any stage of their development and we'll come in, review these, and we'll try and build episodes around particular themes. So if we see that mostly founders are struggling, for instance, with fundraising, or we recently 
did our first episode, which was on people, challenges with co-founders, with hiring, where do you find talent? How do you develop talent? There might be another one around product management. And then we invite experts who have done this before and done this really well and essentially in a live format discuss with the founders what their issue is. Sort of think of it as a bit of an an agony aunt (laughs) for founders. And by the way, with everything that you've done and you've learned over the years, we would love to have you for an episode if you're ever up for it. Amen. (laughs) Totally. No, I mean, it's fascinating what you're doing. It's fascinating your passion for it. I'm sure you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. And it's not just for you or me or anyone you have no idea how far your impact will reach because sometime you would have that just one of those conversations with one person that gets shared with another person that tells his sister and then his sister changes the world. And it's absolutely a privilege to be able to do that. We all have the opportunity to do that. We all have the opportunity to share what we know and share our contacts, share our experiences, be vulnerable, like you said, in open, honest conversations that basically tell people don't make my mistakes, or at least I didn't know they were mistakes when I was making them. And I think all of that is just fascinating. I do know, however, from our short conversation now, you're going to be an entrepreneur again and again and again. I think as soon as uh, they release you out of COVID completely, you're probably (laughs) going to be building a few other things on top of what you're doing. And probably so will you. So I'll see you out there. I'm building. I have two startups as we speak. I mean, I'm hopefully trying to get them to be not fully my responsibility, if you want. I co-found, but I don't actually run them, if you want. I'm running one of them now, but it's for special circumstances. Having said that, it is, it's actually what you just said. It's the ability to interact with magnificent people that teach you something every day. My, my chairman on the board of uh, one of my startups is uh, Lord Mervyn Davis, who's been such a prominent, amazing human being who uh, was the chairman and, and CEO of Standard Chartered Bank and has experiences across the globe. And it's actually quite a privilege to be sitting there and learning from him. And he has that really interesting way of sort of not making me feel that I'm doing something wrong, but telling me that I should be doing something different. And I love that. You know, it's like really, really interesting. And yeah, I mean, I manage because of the years I've spent doing those things to spend hours a week, not even tens of hours a week to be able to keep a startup on track. And you get that with learning and with time and with trust in the people that you work with. But yeah, it's definitely a bug and it definitely doesn't go away. And like you, I just warn you, podcasting, it's the biggest privilege on the planet, (laughs) but it's also very, very, very demanding. It's such an interesting way of living because you meet the most exciting, most intelligent, most inspiring people for the most exciting conversations. And you have to be ready, right? You have to be there and fully present regardless of what happened today. Slow-mo has been probably my biggest gift and my biggest test, I think. And I will say today was one of my favorite conversations, totally unexpected. We went from startups to being a woman, to minorities, to vulnerability, to honesty, to COVID and breakdowns, followed by mindfulness and yoga, to the bug that you and I have. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm so, so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful that you shared so openly. Of course.
How can we have a non-honest conversation about honest conversations? Um, <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> and, it's, and it's also the atmosphere that you create and the way that you inspire the other person to be. So thank you. I can definitely say I've, you're one of the people that inspire a certain way of showing up in tech and in business. And for that, I'm grateful. Oh my God, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, okay, so you, this is me being shy. Uh, no, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Marta. Thank you all for listening. This is, uh, I think this will be our first episode of the year. So I will just say I'm very optimistic about 2022. I hope that we all start to look at it this way, even though we've had two very tough years and, you know, there are things that are always not looking amazing, but put your heart into what's coming. And hopefully, like an entrepreneur, like a founder of something, we can build an amazing year together. I will say that today's conversation was not really about the business side of entrepreneurship. It's about taking ownership. It's about following your dreams, if you want. And maybe that's an amazing start for what I hope will be an amazing year. So happy new year to everyone. And I'm very, very grateful still for the opportunity that you give me to speak to so many amazing people every time we record a, a slow-mo episode. Uh, I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.